Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Uh, welcome to church. Yeah, it's good to have you. Tim, we love you. Good work. Appreciate you. Um, it's always a joy to have you guys join us. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yeah. It's a fun time of year around the Walton household. Whenever you've got small children, you get to kind of see Christmas through the eyes of these beautiful young people. Um, my boys uh, are four, two, and two. And Paxton, the oldest, is starting to understand more and more about Christmas. His favorite song is, is Go Tell It on the Mountain. That's the only so say, Go tell Jesus Christ is born. He really gets that part. And so we're starting to come along to figuring out, you know, what's the, the meaning of Christmas, which, of course, is the birth of Christ. And so what I want to do today is offer a few reflections over the birth of Christ. And as we step into what we call the Advent season, as we, as we reflect and remember um, the first coming of Christ into the world, we're also looking ahead to his coming again, and we're also asking the question, okay, so what now? And so that's what we're going to try to do today, and we're going to do actually not from the Gospels, but from uh, the little book of Galatians. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn there. It's a Galatians, so find the New Testament, uh, thumb past the Gospels, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, keep going right, then you'll hit Galatians. And once you hit Galatians, you're going to chapter, chapter 4, and that's where we'll spend our time in the text today. And as you're turning there, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll uh, get into our text. Ah, Jesus, help us um, to remember your birth and to um, appreciate your life and to have faith in your atoning death and to have hope in your resurrection. Um, God, thank you that we have been found by you and redeemed by you and now set on mission by you. Lord, I ask that you give me clarity now in these upcoming moments. Lord, help me to speak well in a way that honors you. Help my friends here to hear and to apply and to take action in a way that the Holy Spirit directs us to. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, so if you've got the text open, what you're going to do is you're going to look at Galatians 4. Uh, time fails us to kind of set the scene, so I hope we can jump into it and you won't lose too much. You're going to look in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Paul's writing to the church when he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, there's a tremendous amount of things that are happening in this passage, and so what we're going to do is we're trying to kind of focus in on just two questions. Um, the first is this. How does Christ's birth grant us adoption as sons? That's what Paul says. He says, because God sent Jesus into the world, we've now been granted adoption as sons. So we're going to unpack how that works, and then we're going to ask the so what question. Okay, in light of that, now what is our role, responsibility, what is our takeaway from this new reality as being an heir of God? In other words, you could put it this way, why Christmas? 
Why Christmas, and, um, and how should that inform our behavior for the next uh, 11 months out of the year? So the, let's work through it. We're just going to go phrase by phrase. The first thing that Paul says, he orients us, this passage on the birth of Christ, by saying that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, Paul is not just using words here. He's actually doing something quite specific. He's grounding the birth of Christ into something that's very specific, very local, very regional. There was a reason that Jesus came as a first century Palestinian. It was during a time in which Roman might and Greek thought had spread throughout the known world. And so when Jesus was born, he was born into an oppressive system. His people were unoccupied people underneath the heavy hand of the Romans. They knew all about um, restriction and lack of freedom and slavery. Christianity has always been, if you will, a religion of the dust. What do you see in Genesis 1, right? God gets his hands dirty to make us And now what do you see in the Gospels? Jesus coming down in a really dusty way. I mean, born in a manger, in a stable, because there wasn't any room in the inn. And so Jesus is born in this very humble, very lowly, very, if you will, down-to-earth situation. And the thing that I love about Jesus is that he knows, he has walked among us, he has carried our burdens, he understands our temptations, he lived among us as a baby, as a boy, as a teenager, and as a man. Jesus knows about your situation and he cares. And the second thing that Paul says is that Jesus was born of woman, born under the law. Now, these, again, these are not throwaway phrases. Paul is teaching something very specific to us. The first is born of a woman. So by reaffirming the virgin birth that Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, Paul is saying something very tangible, that Jesus is now fully human. We forget this sometimes because the art never helps us out. Jesus is all walking along with the halo and the white robes and the hair that's just like straight out of the conditioner, you know. It's like he probably wasn't like, he was a pretty dusty guy. And what you see in the Gospels, if you read them closely, are all of these markers that remind us of the humanity of Christ. You see him getting hungry and thirsty and tired. You see him getting very frustrated with the lack of faith in his disciples. You see him getting very angry with the opposition of his enemies. You see him do things like eat and drink around a table with friends. Our God is the God who got invited to weddings. He was a pretty fun guy. People loved being around him. He had a sense of humor. He told jokes. He told great stories. Jesus was human. And you see him, what even, and he's dying on the cross, what does he do? He makes arrangement for the care of his mother. He's human. Jesus is not an idea. He's not a philosophy. He's not a force. He's not just an example. He's a person. And as that person is real then, so he is real now because we affirm not only the birth and life of Christ, but also his death and resurrection, which means that now his life can inhabit our own. And when you invite the life of Christ, the very real, tangible life of Christ into your own, it has very real, tangible effect within your life because Jesus is a person, not simply an idea. And then Paul will also say that Jesus was born under the law, which is kind of a curious phrase and one that we may not catch on to altogether because we're not coming from the Jewish background that Paul was writing to. But just think about how, how have we tried to get right with God throughout the years? 
sorry, I've got my pager on with me, so if my kids get in trouble, you all are in trouble too because I've got to go take care of them. Um, um, how, how, have we got, how have we tried to get right with God, right? We've tried to do good stuff in order that God would see our good deeds as outweighing our bad and somehow kind of be okay with us. And if you've ever tried legalism, if you've ever tried being good enough to curry God's favor, just try that six minutes and you will realize that it's an impossible task. It simply cannot be done. And in fact, in the effort you expend, it frequently ends up killing the soul. Now, I'm certainly not here to say that good behavior is of no account. Certainly it is. But when it comes down to getting right with God, I think the thing that we realize is that that kind of right standing, that kind of not guilty verdict, that's so far outside of us, so far beyond us, that there was nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to do that. And so when Paul says that Jesus was born under the law, he's saying something very specific. It's a judicial phrase. It means this. It means that we have received, the law stands against us, to demonstrate to us the depth of our bad behavior and issue a verdict. The verdict is guilty, the condemnation is death. Jesus embodied that system and where every point that we as human beings fell down, failed, sinned, or fell short of the glory of God, what does Jesus do? Jesus succeeds. And so he becomes, even as in Adam we all sin, now through Christ we all now have the ability to be righteous before God. Because if you can imagine this, imagine the condemnation of death hurtling towards you like a runaway train on the tracks, and there you are trapped. What does Jesus do? Jesus embodies everything that the law required, and he stands in front of you like a shield to deflect the oncoming condemnation that was due to you. He became the perfect human being. He became what humanity should be if freed from all of this staining power of sin. So Jesus is going to be an example. We look to Christ for how to live and how to respond and what our attitude should be, absolutely. But Jesus is not simply an example. He wasn't just a good teacher whose words we ought to heed. No, he is far more than that, which is the next phrase that Paul uses. He is what he say is a redeemer, Paul's next phrase. Paul will say that Jesus redeems those who are under the law. Redeems those who are under the law. He was born of woman, born under the law, now to redeem those who are under the law. Paul's using language here from the marketplace. So in Paul's world, slaves uh, would be bought and sold in the public square. There would be an auction. And so a human being would be set up and then a price would be paid. And every now and again, there would be a benefactor in the audience and they would pay the price of the slave in order to set that slave free. That was called redeeming. So when Paul says that we redeem those who are under a law, his original audience would immediately understand the kind of the slave trade terminology. So this is a metaphor. You see that Paul is saying here that Jesus does not simply save us in some sort of like mystical sense. He actually comes down into the dirt and pays a price for us. Okay, so Paul's dealing in metaphor here, right? So we gotta, we got to wrestle this thing right down to the ground and figure out what exactly real and tangible thing he's saying when he's saying that we were redeemed by God or by Jesus. Um, what are we enslaved to? What, we, what, what slave master were we in bondage to? The slave master is sin. And sin was awakened, Paul will say, by the law because the law showed us all how incredibly sinful we were. Right? 
I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know that I was... Well, you should, as a citizen of the land, know the laws because the laws demonstrate to us where our behavior deviates from that which is expected. And so the law demonstrates to us the force of our misbehavior. And so what price does God pay to free us from the slave master? Well, with his own life, of course. See, his was the only perfect life lived to the glory of God, and it was sacrificed on behalf of everyone who would look to the cross and see Jesus as the all-sufficient sacrifice and then trust that his work is sufficient for them. Uh, pastors, if you'll forgive me a technical term, uh, you sometimes here in the trade we call this what we call substitutionary atonement, which is a big word I don't want you to remember. Um, but it essentially means that Jesus dies in our place. That's the substitution part, right? Uh, my wife and I went to go watch The Hunger Games, uh, the one that was in the theaters recently. And so, of course, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. So forgive me if this, you know. But remember that the, in the first movie, when the main character's sister gets called up to go to these Hunger Games, you know what she does, right? She volunteers herself as tribute. Okay? Now, that's a really imperfect analogy, but I hope you can kind of see what you're doing. You see someone taking the place of another to assume upon themselves the full weight of those consequences. That's what we mean by substitutionary. Jesus stands now in our place. What does atonement mean? Atonement means covering. So that when the sin that we had required a just condemnation from the law, and when Christ died on the cross, he assumed in his body all of that condemnation for you and I. And do you know what he did? He died. And he took all of that condemnation and he buried it. So thou does no more. In himself, he does this on our behalf, in our place, for our sin. And of course, the good news is, is that Jesus didn't stay dead. <laughs> yeah, cool. But that's maybe a thing for Easter, not necessarily Christmas. We can talk about the resurrection later. Okay, so we're going to review here. So what have we got so far? The metaphor is we are enslaved to what? To sin. And I think our lives bear this out. How many of us are constantly fighting against the thing we know that we should not be doing, and yet somehow we find ourselves there yet again and again? The Bible calls that slavery. We are not free to choose the good until Christ comes along to pay the price for us. So not only does Jesus redeem us, he purchases us off that auction block, and he says, come on down now as a free man and no longer a slave. So that means that the power of sin is broken in our lives because of what Jesus has done. And so what price does he pay? Of course, with his own life. So why? Why would Jesus do this? Which, of course, is Paul's next phrase. He says, so that, purpose clause, so that we might receive as a free gift adoption, adoption as sons. All right, so now the metaphor is going to shift from the marketplace to the home. See, we are not merely purchased back from the power of sin and then left to our own devices to kind of muck around and end up getting in more trouble than we ever did before. No. See, what Jesus does is he not only sets us free, but we are now free and a beloved child of God. See, the gospel, man, it is such better news than even dare hoped. And the evidence of this adoption is going to be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into our hearts because he says, and because you are sons, follow his logic, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his, sons in, of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So I want you to watch the way that the Trinity is working here, right? 
Jesus saves us and redeems us by purchasing us back from the power of sin at the cost of his own life. God, now seeing us as holy, righteous, and good because of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, now does what? Adopts us into his family, and then the Spirit comes in to indwell us and empower us to live as a child of God. So watch how Paul sums up his argument. At the very end, he says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So do you see the progression? So because of Jesus, and this is only because of Jesus, we have gone from being a slave redeemed by Jesus to now being proclaimed a son. Our identity has been transformed, and not only are we a son, but we've been endued with the power of the Holy Spirit, which now makes us an heir to the inheritance of God himself. When Paul talks about inheritance, which he does frequently, an heir and inheritance, you see that language all throughout the epistles, He's talking about something that all of us as saints share in our relationship and participation with God the Father, that we become image bearers of God and we get to participate in his rule and reign both now and when he comes back to establish the new heavens and the new earth. No matter how you slice this, this is really good news. Like Christmas is awesome. Right? Really good news. And I want you to leave here knowing that if you trust in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and his perfect life, sinless death, that that faith is going to redeem you from slavery. It's going to set you truly free. And you will now be adopted into the family of God wherein you await just simply a staggering inheritance as a child of God. Now, for some of you, this might be old ground. If you pay attention, every time I speak, I try to say something to this effect wrapped up in some words or another. It's because I can't get away from how staggeringly beautiful the gospel is, and I really hope that you guys never get tired of hearing how amazing the gospel is. But I don't want to leave us right here thinking that, oh, jolly good, I've gotten saved now, thank you, Jesus, and I go on my merry way and hope that one day he'll come back and set all this thing right. Because when you look at the gospel, you see frequently that your past is being taken care of, that whole sin issue, done. There is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Yes. My future, glorious inheritance with the saints. Yes. What in the world am I supposed to do with today and tomorrow and the rest of my days here on this earth? What implication does Christmas have for the other 11 months out of the year? How are we supposed to live in light of this? What is my role now as an heir, a child of God? You might notice that you don't um, immediately get like, taken up the moment that you accept Jesus, right? Now, that's a clue, isn't it? That if you're still here as a Christian, that God has something in mind that's simply greater than your own individual salvation, Now, certainly, your individual salvation is of significance, tremendous significance for God. But God has a mission that's beyond just kind of like ushering a whole bunch of people into the heavenly gates upon their death. 
He has a mission to restore himself as the true Lord and King over the entire created order. That's his mission. That's what we saw again in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates a good world over which he has absolute dominion and control, and human beings are set within it to be co-rulers and reigners with God. That's what it means to carry the imago Dei, the image of God, means that we exist within the created order as small reflections of the way that God operates within the world. And of course, the world has been tainted by sin, and so here we are. I don't want to give you this idea because a lot of us, some of us think that we're just simply here kind of toiling away, oiling a machine that's essentially on fire and headed towards a cliff. And one day we're all going to be done with this nasty little earth and go off to heaven. And I would argue somewhat differently. I would argue that God's whole purpose in this is not to simply, oh, try to sweep as many people as he can off the surface of the earth. Too bad for those who don't get on board. Rather, that he is coming back to renew and to restore all things. And in the process of him doing that, that's the whole language of the kingdom of God that you see Jesus declare again and again in the New Testament. That when Jesus comes to proclaim the kingdom, that we now, as citizens of the kingdom of God, have a responsibility here and now to begin to, if you will, foreshadow the kingdom, begin to point as a signpost to the good rule and reign of God in the world around us. Do you remember... Um, that famous line in Luke's gospel, the angels show up, remember, with the shepherds and all of that. And uh, so Jesus has just been born. And remember what they sing? They sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth, right? Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. At Christmas, it's fun to think about peace on earth, isn't it? I was reflecting on this passage, and I was reflecting on the birth of Christ. And I don't uh, get TV service at my house, so I don't have like cable news and all of that, but I'm, I'm on the internet, and so I, I'm somewhat aware of the events going around us, and you are too, and it seems um, a little bit like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? That this world seemingly now more than ever feels to be less at peace than it ever has. And so how can we as Christians stand here and pro- proclaim that the Son of God came to bring peace, and here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still in a bit of a mess, That, that, anyway, so Christmas, uh, you know, these year-end times, this is a pretty retrospective time of year, isn't it? You're going to start seeing all these kind of like top 10 things that happened in 2014 and this kind of stuff that comes out, right? Uh, which is really important. And so I was, I was just kind of reflecting over my own life. Um, you know, for the Walton family, actually 2014 was a really good year. Um, I, early in the year, I got a new position here at the church, which I really love. I'm, I'm very blessed to have a job that I feel is wonderful. Here's my family. I, the four, three boys I mentioned earlier, my wife, beautiful wife there. This is us at Thanksgiving. Um, I got a job, and I really love my job. I feel like I can do something significant um, within the space that I work, on behalf of the people that I work with. I think it's that's really important to have a job that you really enjoy. Um, my wife and I bought a house a couple of years ago in a beautiful neighborhood right here in Canby. Um, and we've got equity in our house, thank you very much, which is just amazing. Um, we were blessed to, you know, have good timing there. 
Um, these two boys, the twins there you see on the left, they were born really early, premature. They just turned two and a half, and the developmental specialist says that they've got no sign of any sort of a developmental delay at all. They've got a clean bill of health, which is a huge, huge blessing for us because we weren't sure you know, with that. So that was a huge thing. And so because my kids are getting older, of course, uh, my wife and I are able to sleep you know, for longer than 45 minutes at a time. Um, <laughs> Which really makes a difference. Sleep deprivation is a monster, and it turns you into like these subhuman like gargoyles. And so um, my wife and I fight a lot less, and that's really good. Um, and my health is good, and my marriage is strong, and I've got beautiful kids, and I've got a great job, and I'm able to pack away a little bit for retirement. I mean, the American dream is kind of working out just fine for me. Thank you very much. And I recognize as I say all of that how much of an anomaly that is. Now, my life is not all like umbrella drinks and poolside cabanas, don't get me wrong. Like there's, we're still working through some very significant things and there are certainly challenges, but on the whole, if you see it through a certain lens, I've got a whole lot of reason for hope and optimism. There's a lot of peace in my life. And the challenge is that if you're anything like me, where the cards have fallen nicely in your favor, um, that you have, you, there's a sense to kind of sense like, well, since I'm doing okay... Um, then, that's, then that's kind of the end of the story. I'm doing okay, and that's what's really important. And yet, um, if you zoom out a little bit, um, we may miss some of the larger issues that go on in the world, and the larger issues, especially as it relates to how we as Christians, who are people of peace, serving the Prince of Peace, interact with the world. So we're going to finish by looking at three of these issues. There's economic, political, and racial so I'm a charts and graphs guy because I work with numbers, so you have to forgive me. I want to show you this first one. Um, so we had a great recession. Many of you guys remember that um, in 2008 and nine, And then since then, um, let me see here. The White House has been fond of tweeting out this graph. So every month there's a jobs report that comes out. And so this will show you that since uh, you see those blue lines, that's everything since President Obama has taken office. And for the most of that time, we've seen job growth. So these are all the numbers of jobs that have been added back into the economy, almost 11 million over the past five years or so, and almost 300,000 here in the month of November. And this is, this is good news. More people are working nationwide um, than there certainly was. And so the economic recovery seems to be uh, well underway. Here, I think nationwide unemployment sits at about 5.8%. Uh, it's a little bit higher here in Oregon, but you can see that certainly since the height of the recession, there's been about a 40% drop in unemployment here. Uh, so that means that even locally, it's a little higher than the nation, but still people are getting back to work. So this is, this is hopeful stuff. The concern, though, sometimes underneath some of these numbers is that if you look to see where's all of this money that's being reinjected into the economy, who is it going to? And the answer is it's primarily going to those um, who are at the top kind of 1% of the pile. If you look at the real wage-earning power, especially amongst people in my generation, the kind of 30-somethings, um, it's remained stagnant or relatively flat. So look at this. will take a little second to kind of figure out. Um, so this is the world's wealth shared amongst its population. So that big fella there on the left, he represents about 70% of all the people in the world. And those are folks who make less than 10,000 U.S. dollars annually. And collectively, 70% of the world's population controls only 3% of its wealth. And then on the other side, you see that those who have a net worth of a million dollars or greater, um, that makes up less than 1% of the population, but they control over 40 
42%. So collectively, 42 and 41, that's 83% of the world's wealth is owned by less than 9% of the people. Now, um, that just is. Um, I would imagine that if you took all of the world's wealth and you threw it up in the air and you let it come down to whomever it may, you give it five years and then we might see this whole graph come across again. Um, the point I'm trying to make with all of this is that we, hear, we have this um, dream, the American dream, that if you work really hard and you pay your time, then, then, you'll, then you'll achieve some sort of comfort in life. And for many people, that's simply not true. They're working really hard, but they're not seeing any significant gains um, in their quality of life or anything else like that. And then certainly we've got this whole issue where you've got almost a third of the world's population living in poverty and over a billion people living on a dollar a day or less. Um, and so you've got this massive disparity between the absolutely wealthy um, and those who aren't. And now, don't get me wrong, I'm not any communist and I'm not advocating for this radical redistribution of wealth. But what I am advocating for is that we here as Christians, we have a responsibility to be able to engage the economic systems of our world in a distinctly Christian way. Now, many of you have been given charge over something significant, and some of you have just been given charge over the desk or the the shop where you work. Go to work and be there as a Christian. That means not only doing things with excellence, but also looking out for justice and equity and compassion as well. I think we now have to be diligent to stand up for those who are being crushed underneath this economic system for whom are working just insane hours and receiving very little in return. I think Christians need to be an advocate for those who have no voice within the economic system, and we need to take care of the poor. But we also, and this is the the more challenging part, It's not simply enough to respond to the need after the fact, but to question the very systems that create cycles of poverty in the first place. And that's something that's far more systemic and far more entrenched, and I don't have a way forward there only to point it out to you that if we are going to be people who embody the ethic of the Prince of Peace, the way that we handle our money individually and the way that we as Christians see the economic system as a whole and our little space of what God has given us to influence, we have to take that seriously in a distinctly Christian way. The next one it kind of plays into the second point of the political sense. Um, if, especially uh, my generation, politically is very cynical. So that translates into basically not voting. Do you guys remember this November election that we just had? Did you see the numbers that came out of it? Look at this bottom line. The midterm election there in 2014, that number says 36.3% of eligible voters actually cast a ballot. So almost 7 out of 10 people chucked it. And that's a clue to say that many people either A, don't care, or they believe that they don't actually have a voice because it's all just a massive mess anyway, and it's all completely dominated by well-funded special interest groups, and the voice of the citizens has been completely lost within the political space today. This next graph will show you that trust in the government, no surprise here, all-time lows. Now, I love democracy. I think it's a fantastic system. But again, these are simply evidences of the fact that something is beginning to break down. And so what should the Christian do in the political sphere? I think that we need to be more actively engaged. Now, we are not a theocracy in which the vision and the value of Scripture is going to be implemented nationwide. However, those of us who have political inclination or for those of us who care to run for office or especially just in the way that you vote, again, vote in a distinctly Christian way, one that upholds the ethic of the kingdom of God, 
that emphasizes justice, care for the poor, compassion, equity, joy, mutual brotherhood. Um, I'm not sure, um, again, these are larger issues than what I get paid to think about, but I'm just bringing them here to um, figure out, you know, figure out what we do. I, I found this on Twitter that I found was pretty helpful. It's this idea from Blaise Pascal. What does it say? He's a French thinker from about 300 years ago. It says, justice and power must be brought together so that whatever is just may be powerful and whatever is powerful may be just. What do we grow up hearing? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I would say no. Seek positions of power humbly and then bring justice alongside of them. And the church, for its turn, must not be complicit in helping the state enact unjust laws and principles, but must stand outside of that process to be able to speak a voice of truth and justice to the powers that be, influencing it and showing that there is another way. Again, we are citizens of the kingdom of God embedded within the United States of America, and we have responsibilities to both. So speak truth to power. And the last one is this. This is the most difficult one. Uh, Is racial. Um, The events that have unfolded in Ferguson, Missouri, and then more recently in uh, Manhattan, Staten Island, regarding the deaths of Michael Brown, Eric Garner, these are very complicated situations. And they defy easy categorization. Um, Chances are that if you're on Facebook, your feed has been filled up with articles and comments Um, all about this kind of thing, and you've arrived at your own opinion as I'm not here to debate the finer points of the cases themselves. I'm only here to try to point out the obvious that things are not as they should be. And it breaks my heart. And I don't know what to do about it. Because on one hand, I'm like, well, here I am, a white male, at the top of the privilege heap. What am I supposed to do? I, I don't know. But I know that what we're seeing today and the kind of racial unrest that we're seeing and the kind is, is it's God came to break down those barriers. He came to destroy the dividing wall of separation that kept people back. Now in him, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. It, like we are one in Christ and we've lost this idea that all of us, each of us, are part of the image of God. Um, We do not yet live in a post-racial society. The dream of Martin Luther King Jr. is still there in which his children will be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Um, Not everyone in America experiences America the same way. And I don't know. For me, I guess the only way forward is that the church embodies the ethic of Jesus Christ Compassion, nonviolence, forgiveness, reconciliation. And those characteristics must animate us as a church as we engage this fear. We cannot stand idly by and say it's happening elsewhere. It doesn't affect us. We are the body of Christ. Some of us, like me, need to acknowledge the depth of our own privilege and rather than jumping to conclusions, need to be silent and listen to the voices of the underrepresented. 
And some of us need to acknowledge a kind of subtle or tacit racism that we all have when we see stories like this in the media and we immediately try to find a narrative that paints the African-American victim as somehow something other that somehow they deserved it. And we dehumanize them in the process and we forsake the fact that they too are a child of God. And some of us, um, all of us, I think, need to stand fully underneath the stream that flows from the cross of Christ that says grace that says, I paid the price for all of us to live at peace. Now, those are just three issues. I mean, uh, money, politics, and race. I mean, you could go on. You could talk about environmental degradation. That's a seriously scary issue. You could talk about the geopolitical unrest in the Middle East and other places. You could talk about, you want to talk about war on Christmas? Talk to Iraqi Christians right now. Um, You want to talk about a, a refugee problem? What's happening to over 2 million Syrian children who have been displaced because of the events happening there? I mean, you look around the world, and if you're paying attention, you're seeing that peace is not marking our world. And yet we as the church, as agents of reconciliation, love, and justice, embodied um, sons and daughters of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, looking to Jesus, what should we do? Friends, it's not simply enough to say, Good, I've been saved. I'm going to heaven when I die. You've been sent on a mission now to reflect the very same love and reconciling power that God has extended to you now in your daily relationships. Ron spent six weeks talking about everything that was broken in all of our relationships. We need to start there in our own homes, but we have to then expand to our own communities and our state and our nation. And those of you who have been given influence in those areas prayerfully, humbly, consistently move forward to advance the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is reconciliation and peace. And until the day comes when God comes to set all things right and the witches, the wicked will be vindicated and judged and the righteous will be exalted, continue to fight for that which is true and just and do not give hope, give up hope. You are not laboring in vain. The good work that you do on behalf of the kingdom of God, serving Jesus Christ, is not wasted. Not now, not in the heavens and earth to come. It is not wasted. So let us redouble our efforts to be people of peace. Let us be a church that is known to bring people in and to love them into healing and wholeness and point them to the only true Savior, who is Jesus Christ. Politics will come and go. Money will come and go. Race will come and go. But Jesus will remain. And until the day comes when he's coming back, I want to be a person, and I want this to be a church in which we carry the flame of Jesus to say there is a different way to live that we are a people of peace. Jesus, help us to bring peace. Help us to be boldly moving into the spaces um, that Christians have been evicted from in our world uh, to um, bring reconciliation, to bring the good news of your saving grace. God, help us to acknowledge our own sinfulness and to repent and to walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us now, God, to remember your birth and what you've come to do, both this month and the month that comes. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, friends. When we stand, we'll sing the doxology. We'll be dismissed. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com.
Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope. Hope. 